We're so glad that you're with us this morning. If you have your Bibles today, I want you to grab hold of them, whether they're iPhone or tablet or just a leather-bound version of the Bible. Turn to Luke chapter 13 today, Luke chapter 13. If you've been with us over the last uh, number of months, you'll know that we're walking through the entire book of Luke. And you know, part of the reason we do this, and one of the reasons we call this series the Jesus series is because Luke is one of those of the four Gospels that detail the life of Jesus so well. You see so much about his life, about his character, about what he came to do. But above and beyond that, Luke tells us exactly what Jesus is calling us to do. And in this particular section of Luke, it's talking about all the havoc, all the uh, opposition, all the difficult things that happen as we follow Christ. I think you'll agree with me this morning, following Jesus is not the easiest thing in the world to do. In fact, anyone that says that they gave their life to Jesus and their life turned out to be just fantastic after that is not telling you the whole story, right? Because following Jesus is tough. It's tough on you. It's tough on others around you. It's not easy to die to self every day. It's not easy to look for him to live through you in a supernatural way. Lots of yielding, lots of dying to self, lots of repositioning your life so that you can be more in alignment with him. And this message today has a lot to do with repositioning ourselves in a religious perspective because this is about religious havoc, religious havoc. Last week we looked at spiritual havoc where the demons came out of the woodwork as Jesus began to speak and work today. The religious zealots come out of the woodwork and oppose Jesus in an incredible way. Let's stand together as we read beginning in chapter 13, beginning in verse 10 of Luke. The Bible says he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit and she was bent doubled. I want you to get a picture of what this looks like as we even read into the text. And, and the truth is that when we talk about the word bent over double, it's usually in a, in a way of laughter. We're laughing so hard, we're bent over double. It means we can't straighten up. It means we're, we're really perpendicular to our legs. We're looking down, we're leaning over. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue and a woman comes in like this. However she's walking, she walks in and Jesus sees her. It says, verse 11, this woman for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit was bent double. She could not straighten up at all, ever. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. I love the King James Version in certain uh, verses that express it in an unusual way. And in this particular verse, it says in the King James, woman, thou art loosed. You're going to be set free right here. Verse 13, and he laid hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Somebody say Amen. I mean, I want you to be in this. There's a woman doubled over. Jesus says, you're going to be free. He lays hands on her. She stands upright at that moment and begins glorifying God, which you would do as well. Verse 14, but the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, not on the Sabbath day. Somebody say, boo. I mean, that's a bad deal. I mean, here's Jesus glorif being glorified, glorifying the Father by healing this woman. Everybody is excited about this, and this religious official steps up and says, stop the party. You can't do that on this day. You can do that on six days a week, not this day. So, verse 15, the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. 
Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead them away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all of the glorious things being done by him. Father, today in Jesus' name, would you speak to us as though we were that woman? And as though we are bent over, doubled over with whatever spiritual or emotional or physical affliction we have? And Father, would you help us to see the difference between genuine faith and hypocrisy? And would you help us follow you the way you designed for us to follow you today? Lord, I pray that you'll illuminate this passage by the power of your Holy Spirit on every mind, every heart in this room. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You can be seated now. Thank you so much for standing for God's word. Last week, I was looking uh, through uh, some video on the internet because I'd remembered that I'd seen some video of animals that had been captured and kept in cages their whole life until someone finally freed them. I saw zoo animals, lions, and I saw a video of an elephant that had been uh, ensnared, been captured, bound, uh, never had seen grass, never had seen a body of water, just kept in the cage, only performing for the circus and back in the cage, doing that for the entirety of their lives. I saw one video of a dog that had been chained by its owner to the back wall of their house. And apparently the woman who couldn't take care of the dog or refused to call anyone else to do so had let the dog grow up its entire life chained to the back of that house. The chain would reach to the fence, kind of a chain link fence next to a sidewalk, but the dog just basically sat on the porch for the 10 years of its existence. Finally, one day, this video shows that a man walked by, saw the dog, and as he walked by day after day, he began to speak to the dog, eventually calling the dog to the fence, Eventually, as he reached his hand into the fence, he befriended the dog and found out the dog responded quite well to a human's touch, to a human's love. And eventually, the man knocked on the door of the home and said to the woman, you need to let this dog go. It's cruelty that you're doing this, and uh, I'm willing to take the dog. And uh, finally, she relented. And the video shows this dog being released from a backyard, from a short chain, from no human contact at all to finally being liberated to, real, to live a real life, a great dog's life, if you will. And it's a, it's a powerful video. It's a video that moves your heart because this poor animal has been in bondage for so long and now he's free. And I watch that. I'm moved by that. I'm thinking, this is cruel. And then I think about the fact that human beings are in bondage in some way. And here's Jesus to set them free. And the religious leaders say, wait, you did it wrong. You didn't do it on the right day. Leave them in bondage another day until you get to the right day. I'm seeing the compassion of Jesus move on the scene and the lack of love and lack of compassion by the religious leaders of that day. And this is what Jesus is dealing with. This is the havoc. This is the opposition that begins to rise up when Jesus moves into people's lives. It's the very beginning of opposition we see in Luke chapter 11, 12, 13, uh, 14 and 15, and we'll be looking at that. Now, let me just say this to you, that, that when Jesus begins to move in your life, there will be religious 
uh, opposition to that. There will be religious objections to what you're doing, to how passionate you follow him, to how much in love you may be with Jesus. There will be those that say, calm down, back off. You're not doing it right. You've got to do it this way, the way we've always done it. And I want you to know today, even Jesus had to deal with that kind of opposition. And as we unfold this passage, as we look at these points, there are several points in the story that help us see what Jesus came to do and what he's calling us to do. So let's look at the first one. This is the point where all compassion breaks loose. By the way, this word that we'll use, break loose or loosen or set free, is the word luo in the Greek. You see it three times here in the scripture. Jesus uses it each time to, to, to take the chains off, to remove the enslavement, to help this woman who is bound by her physical illness to be set free. So let's look at the first one. This is the point where all compassion breaks loose and we go back to verse 10. Jesus is actually teaching there that day and in the synagogue during that teaching time walks this woman. Now apparently everybody knows about this woman because it seems it's common knowledge that she's been bent over double for 18 years and there she is walking into the synagogue. She can't straighten up. And when Jesus saw her, the Bible says, he stopped everything and he called her over to where he was. Now, that had to disrupt the flow of the synagogue worship. That had to disrupt the reading of the Torah and the law, which Jesus often did when he was in the synagogue. And if he had been reading that day, he would have just said, stop, we're going to stop reading this scroll for a moment. Because here's somebody that God loves, and I see her, and we're going to deal with her for a moment. Now, you imagine never having seen any of that happen in your entire life of your synagogue worship, and all of a sudden, all this takes place. Now I want you to think about it from the perspective of the woman for just a few moments. 18 years she's been bent double. It's publicly humiliating, probably embarrassing. It's a messed up way to live. It's a tragic way to have to go through life day in and day out, having to find a way to cook or find food, having to find a way to deal with domestic life if she's married or has children, to find a way to deal with social life when you're bent over double. Nobody can help her at all. And the Bible says that Jesus saw her. I want to dig into that for just a moment. Because when Jesus saw her, he saw her differently than how we see people. We see her one way, but the religious people of that day saw her in a certain way. But Jesus saw her in a completely different way. And you know what? He sees us in a different way too. Because when Jesus sees us, he sees the whole picture. He doesn't just see the physical ailment. He doesn't just see the frown on the face. He doesn't just see the, the, the obvious uh, de depression or setback that we may be having. He sees something beyond the physical, and he did that with her. He saw her soul. He saw her pain. He saw her heartbreak. He saw her history. No one told him in this story that she had 18 years of history with this affliction. He saw her humiliation. He saw the years of hope that she must have had without fulfillment. He saw the fact that she'd come to the synagogue. Surely she had prayed prayers without an answer. He saw her heart and the desires and the grief that must have been in her heart. He knew every single year of her bondage, every single day, every moment of her bondage. He knew how she was bound. He knew exactly when it happened and who was responsible and the demon that did it. And he saw what must have been the, the abject pity that she looked at life with. I know when I travel into India, which is almost every year, I see people that are in what we would call despicable, deplorable physical situations. Many of them live in cardboard 
for houses, that's the only wall they have. They have no way of getting money, they have no way of getting food, and they basically just rummage through the trash pits for something to eat. And they've gone way beyond hope. At one point they may have hope, but they have got no more hope. They've got no access, they've got no way for anybody to intervene in their life, and there's just this Paul that's over them. It's almost beyond belief when someone stops and tries to help, which we do. It's almost beyond belief when we bring medical care and when we bring food to them. It's almost like, what are you doing and why are you doing this and how is it that you have come that anybody even cares about me? That's where this woman was. This woman is in that same situation, but what I want you to see today is that Jesus saw her and with this bold statement said, woman, you are loosed. I'm gonna set you free today. But before I set you free, I'm going to see you. I'm going to know you. And you're going to know my compassion. And you're going to know my love. And what you see coming out of this text is the compassion of Jesus to see the need of the woman, that she needs freedom. And this is the common theme about the life of Jesus. Jesus loved people. Now, Jesus came to reveal God the Father. And what Jesus is doing is he's living life out in such a way where you and I and all the people of that day would know there is a God. He knows about me. He cares about me. And he can change my condition without question. Somebody in this room needs to say amen about that. We need to be grateful for that because that's who God is. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating to us. The amazing compassion of God the Father is just his way. If you go back to Luke chapter 7, which is where Jesus began uh, to talk in such a way where everyone would know he was the Messiah, Luke 7 verse 22 is one of those interesting little conversations where John the Baptist says to his disciples, John's in prison, he knows he's facing death, and he says to those that have been following him, is this one that we've been pointing to, is he really the Messiah? Is he really the, the one that God sent? And so these disciples go and ask Jesus, John's asking about you. He's wanting to know, are you the one or should we seek someone else? And Jesus answered in chapter 7 of Luke verse 22. He answered and said to them, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, you go and tell John that you've seen the compassion of God in this man named Jesus. You go and tell him you've seen the power of God at work where the compassion of God is demonstrated. See, we live in a world that needs salvation, that needs truth, that needs healing, that needs freedom, just like that world was. And this way that Jesus sees this woman is the same way he sees us today. I haven't seen anybody in this room today who've walked in bent over double or in bondage to physical pain, even though you may have it today. But all bondage isn't physical, as you know. There may be some in this room today who are bent over emotionally or spiritually, and your hope could be exhausted, just like hers was. There may be some today whose endurance is at the end. You've waited a long, long time for God to do something in your life and you're wondering why he hasn't worked and you're about to give up hope and you're wondering if you're just going to have to deal with this for the rest of your life, whatever that is. There are some of you that are brokenhearted, you're disappointed, you're disillusioned in people and in God and in life in general and you're wondering when you're gonna be in, able to interact with the living God who makes everything new, who changes everything. You're wondering about that. Let me just say to you that the Jesus of that day is the Jesus of today. They're one and the same. The same Jesus that saw this woman sees you. He sees you as 
He saw her. Now, one of the reasons we worship the Lord the way we do, we sing songs like, he's a chain breaker, he's a pain taker, he's a way maker, is because we've experienced that in our lives. How many of you have ever experienced Jesus today as a chain breaker? Say amen. amen. How about Jesus as a pain taker? Amen. amen. How about Jesus as a way maker? Amen. amen. You see, we've seen Jesus work in our lives in those supernatural ways, and the disciples were learning that day that when Jesus comes into the house, compassion is there as well. But this is also a text and a point where all religion breaks loose. This is the bad point of the text. Every text has a bad point. It's got a problem that needs to be solved. Now, the problem that needs to be solved in this text is not just the woman, but the false religion that could do nothing about her and couldn't even love her. I want you to notice what it says in verse 14. But the synagogue official was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. He's not excited about the healing at all because it doesn't fall on the right day. And if you dig into the, the, uh, the words in the original language, the word indignant here actually means pain and grief. He was so oppressed in mind, he couldn't be quiet. He was so indignant and so angry because it violated everything that he thought was important in spite of the fact that it was Jesus showing supernatural compassion for a woman that they had never tried to help, that no one else had ever been able to help, and he was angry and mad. He had the sickness that we call pride, religious pride. You know, we live in an era where, where folks have the same kind of sickness, sometimes religious and sometimes not, but pride. And the pride is, if you do or say something that bothers me, then I'm going to lash out at you. Anybody ever experienced that? Or if you believe or say something, or if you do something that, that in some way violates what you think is the right thing to do, then you're going to be angry and you're going to lash back out because it's your right to think a certain way. Well, this guy had a right to think a certain way, but he was thinking the wrong way. And that wrong way was called out by Jesus. You see, all the man-made ideas of religion began creating havoc with the Son of God, and it shouldn't be that way at all. When Jesus comes into the house, any authentic religion ought to embrace him. But this one was not embracing him. And so this, this official who was in charge of the order of worship of a synagogue was mad because it didn't go like he had planned. Because it didn't follow the order of worship. Because that woman should have sat down at the back and been quiet. Because Jesus should have just done what he was asked to do and nothing else. So it was not going according to his plan and he was indignant and began speaking to the people around him, not even bold enough to speak to Jesus. And what's he saying? Well, he's grieved and he's grousing about it. He's saying things like, this was egregious and insulting. What Jesus did is wrong because he did it on the wrong day. And you see what fake religion does? What fake religion does, instead of compassion, it shows condemnation. Instead of grace, it shows pride. And this is where Jesus moves from a smiling Jesus to something else. God's character is manifested in a lot of different ways. He's a loving, merciful God who doesn't want to punish us for our sin. That's part of the, the character of God. He's a smiling Jesus, but he can also be a just judge who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. That's just part of the gospel. Terminology around some of my friends are there's a smiling Jesus, but there's also a temple Jesus. Anybody know what a temple Jesus is? A temple of Jesus is like Jesus coming into the temple and cleaning it out. He's not smiling because he needs to clean house. He's got work to do. And so in this scene, we move from a Jesus smiling at 
a, a woman that needs him, and he's demonstrating compassion and concern. He's genuinely happy that she's in his presence, genuinely glad to be able to deliver her to a moment where he's not smiling anymore as he looks at this, at this official of the synagogue. Look down in verse 15. But the Lord answered to him and said, and it's all summed up in two words very, very well, you hypocrites. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? You would take an animal out to give it water on this day and you're mad because I'm delivering this woman who's been afflicted for 18 years. Something is wrong with your head and your heart. And that's what false religion does. The word hypocrite is the word he used there. Basically, he says, you're a pretender. You're a counterfeiter. You're a mask wearer. The word hypocrito uh, in the Greek is the way you say it. It's almost transliterated completely to hypocrisy or hypocrite. That means a mask wearer. Later on, it was used in theater to describe someone who put a mask on their face and became an actor in a play and playing a certain part. He's saying, this is what you're doing with religion. On the outside, you're trying to look like you're religious and you're pious. You're trying to look like you care about the things of God, but you don't. And so you're a pretender. And that was a pretty bold statement for him to make in the synagogue, among others who were following the Judaism that had been dominated by the rabbis. So religion raises its ugly head right here. Now, in order to get to Luke chapter 13, we had to walk all the way through Luke 11. And I want you to turn to Luke 11 for just a moment. Verse 37 is where the text begins in Luke 11. And this is Jesus' longest discourse against the Pharisees and the, law, the lawyers and the scribes. And it would take us quite a while to walk through it all, so I've summarized this for you today. In fact, we would probably be able to go all the way to 1 o'clock if we look at this particular text word by word. But because of compassion, I'm going to summarize it for just a moment, okay? Plus, it's bad news all the way through, so you'll, you'll thank me for it later. Trust me. What I want to give you is based on this text about summarizing the five kinds of hypocrisy that Jesus points out. And I'm going to frame this in such a way so that you may ask this question. Here's the question. You might be a hypocrite if, and we're going to follow up with a statement, okay? Five different statements that Jesus has clarified to these who are Pharisees and scribes and lawyers. In this text that I've referenced, Luke 11, verse 37 to the end of the chapter, there are six woes that he pronounces upon the Pharisees and the lawyers. I'm going to give you five key summaries here. You might be a hypocrite if you are religiously clean but inwardly wicked. At the top of this discourse, at the top of the statement, Jesus says, you're like a cup whitewashed on the outside but on the inside filthy. No one would drink from that cup. If someone drank from that cup, they would be contaminated. So I don't want you acting like that you're a follower of mine because you're a hypocrite. You're a pretender. You don't want the inside of the cup clean. You don't want to let God cleanse the inside of the cup. You might be a hypocrite if you're more concerned about what the outward is instead of the inward. If you're not willing to let Christ cleanse you and purify you and cause you to have a different kind of character than you had before you came to faith in Christ, you might be a hypocrite if you just dress up on Sundays and come to church and look like everything is together when in fact it's not. You know, we have to be real with each other. We don't have it all together. Anybody that has it all together in this room, would you raise your hand? Would you please not do that? <laughs> Sometimes people are not listening to me when I say, if you have it all together, raise your hand. People go, 
Then I have to call on you again and say, you don't have it all together. And you won't have it all together until Christ comes back and completes you. But until then, you can be on the journey to having it together by letting him have the inside, the heart. Jesus is concerned about the heart. So you might be a hypocrite if you're only concerned about the outside. Secondly, you might be a hypocrite if you observe finer points of religion but ignore justice and life. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you tithe mint and dill, little herbs out of the garden, and you, you, you harvest these little herbs and you carve out 10%, you give them to the Lord. You're really concerned about what men see you do, so you're really fastidious about that, but you don't care about people. You don't care about justice. You don't care about people that are wronged or victims or hurting. You don't care about the things of God. You might be a hypocrite if you do that. Number three, try to make this brief. You may be a hypocrite if you desire the attention and respect of men, not God. The Pharisees love to be on the street corners as they pray. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 6, and he does it again in Luke chapter 11. They love to be seen by men. You might be a hypocrite if you're more concerned about the respect of men than the respect of God. Number four, you might be a hypocrite if your life contaminates and deadens other spiritual lives. Jesus said it like this. It's kind of hard to decipher. You're like tombs that are disguised and people walk over them and fall into them. In the Old Testament days, if you touched a corpse, you were contaminated by touching that which was dead. This was Jesus' way of saying, you are dead spiritually and everybody you come into contact becomes like you because it's easy to live life just keeping the rules of the outside without letting the inside be transformed. You might be a hypocrite if that describes you. Then number five, you might be a hypocrite if you persecute and destroy God's messengers. You see, they killed the prophets because they didn't like the message that the prophets brought. And that's why they didn't acknowledge Jesus as Messiah because they didn't like the way he came. So Jesus steps up where religion breaks loose and puts it back into place. Now let's go back to the smiling Jesus for just a few moments because Jesus smiling at the woman, showing compassion on her, turned into the temple Jesus and rebuked the hypocrites and then turned back to the woman that he'd been smiling at as he taught the Pharisees by her life. Verse 16, and this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, you say you're a son of Abraham? Here's a real daughter of Abraham right here. Whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now let me just tell you what this does for this woman. This, this speaks to this woman in the deepest possible way. This daughter of Abraham treats her with respect, in honor, he identifies her as a true daughter. He puts the priority on her need instead of what's pious in the eyes of religion. You see selfless, pure motive. You see love-based, life-giving ministry. And what he does is a pattern for how we're to treat people all around us. See, we need to be loose from these religious restrictions and shackles and set free to reach out and touch people in Jesus' name because it powerfully impacts their lives. I've told this story before, and I know I talk a lot about India, but it does impact my life. When I first began going almost 20 years ago, we had a crusade in a city in India, 
And there were 20,000 people that came for that crusade that night. And I was standing up to preach. I noticed for the first time as I stood up that most of the people that I could see, nearly all, were women. Almost all of them were women. Now, it was unusual because typically we would see men on one side of the crowd and women on the other. That's how they see each other there in, uh, in India. And, uh, but I saw very, very few men at all. And I turned to the host who was leading the crusade, a man who was an Indian national who, who led in uh, large ways with that organization. And I said, where are the men? And he looked and he looked back at me and said, I'm not sure. And then he looked further and he said, well, there they are way at the back. And I said, how many men are here? He said, maybe 500. And I said, how many women are here? He said, maybe 20,000. I don't know what you guys think about standing in front of people and speaking, but I'd far rather to speak to 20,000 men than 20,000 women. <laughs> and one of the reasons is because women see not just you physically, but they tend to look into your heart, your motivations, and everything else. They're far more discerning than men. Guys will go, yeah, 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 but a woman will listen. She'll think it through. You've got to be more genuine, more real when you preach to women. And as I got up into the, into the podium to speak, I had a message all prepared that would have been great for the men. But it wasn't so good for the women. It was addressing men. And the Lord said to me, you go to another text. And he showed me that text. And that text was about the woman with the issue of blood. One of the other texts where Jesus speaks to a woman who's in need. And at the conclusion of that text... He says to this woman, daughter, your faith has made you whole. And I preached that text. And when I said the word daughter, your faith has made you whole, there was an audible gasp and a murmur in the crowd. Not long after that, I gave an invitation. Thousands of women came to put their faith in Christ. And later I talked to the organizer and I said, what happened? What, what did I say? What made them start talking? He said, for them to know that they were seen as daughters of God Most High was the most significant thing you could have said to them. It said we belong. It said someone cares. It says someone knows our need and has met our need. And that's what Jesus has done with his daughter. This is a daughter of Abraham, he says to this religious oppressor. This is a woman who needs the compassion of God, who deserves the compassion of God, and I'm going to give them the compassion of God. And let me just take a pause for a moment. Let me just say that we as a church want to accomplish three things really, really well. I say this to all of our people who come to our guest reception room. We want to accomplish three things very well as a church in addition to our vision statement and purpose statement. Those three things are this. We want to love God well. We want to love the scripture well. And we want to love people well. There are those that love God. There are those that kind of love the scripture but it's very, very important that we love God, love Scripture, and love people because Jesus did that. And Jesus is our master. He's our leader. Now, this is the point where all of heaven breaks loose. Look in verse 17. As he said this, all of his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things done by him. I love this text. I love this verse. I love the conclusion of this synagogue meeting where the woman is healed. And, and maybe this is right up there next to her healing. As he said, this, all his opponents 
were humiliated. It's appropriate that the enemies of Christ be humiliated. It's appropriate that religious oppressors in life will be humiliated. The legalists will at some point be humbled. Those who condemn others will at some point be humiliated. The self-righteous, the gossiper, the racist, the proud, the persecutors, all will be humiliated someday as they bend a knee before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's important that we understand that. I want you to know today, if you're a false follower of Christ, if you're, a, if you're a counterfeit, if you're a hypocrite, your day is coming. And it won't be wonderful. It won't be good. And that's why it's so incredibly important for us to open up our hearts and let the Holy Spirit look inside and clean out the inside, convict us of the things that we don't do well in following Him, and let us follow Him in heart as well as in action. But it's also here appropriate that the entire crowd rejoices over the glorious things that God has done. That word rejoice is a great one. It also refers to what Jesus said when he said, when one lost sheep comes home, there's more joy in the presence of heaven than 99, sinners who need, who, 99 sheep who didn't need to repent. Heaven's rejoicing. God is rejoicing, and the people are rejoicing. That's a pretty important thing. You know, one of the things that motivates us, and motivates me in particular, to urge people to take the gospel into our communities, to homes where people live who've never been in church and probably are not ever gonna come. But one of the things that motivates me is that people need to see the compassion of the Lord, the love of the Lord, because all they maybe have seen in their life is the church building or maybe a church that's living a hypocritical way or a counterfeit kind of faith, but they need to see the love of God and the compassion of God, the good news of Jesus Christ. They need that so bad. And that's why we're motivated to go out to teams. That's why tonight we'll go out in teams because I know there are busy things happening. Lots of entertainment is happening. The Cowboys will not have finished the game, although they'll probably be in a losing position by the time we go out tonight. But we're going out because we have something more important than that. More important than a football game, more important than entertainment, more important than anything else is that people's lives are bound up like this woman's life is bound up and need to be delivered. About a year ago, we made a visit and uh, eventually videotaped the result of that visit. Someday we'll show you that video, but I want to tell you the story today. We knocked on the door of a home and uh, nobody answered the door. We kind of sensed that somebody was there, but they didn't come, so we left a bag of information there. And it was Russell and Michelle Gregory who, uh, who left that bag of information. And uh, when they got back uh, to the house, they said, you know, nothing really happened tonight. We went out and knocked on a few doors and nobody, nobody answered the door. But there was a call made the next day into our office at church and they got a hold of Michelle, who was at the time was our director of a simulation. simulation. And uh, this woman that called said, you know, I was home and I was hopeless and I was in the back bathroom and I had a gun and I had the gun to my head. And some of the last words I said were, God, if you care, send somebody to show me you care. And the door knocked at that moment. See, it took me a while to regain my composure, to lay the gun down. It took me a while to get to the door. And uh, when I got there, nobody was there, but it was a bag left on the door. And it had this phone number on it. I'm calling this phone number. Would you come? Would you come visit with me? So that visit was made. And in that home that day, on that visit, 
that woman and her husband both came to the place of saying, we need to give our life to Jesus. We've never heard the good news. We've never known we can be forgiven. We've never known that we can have peace in our life. We never have known how to get loose of these bonds that hold us together. We're enslaved to sin and the ways of life. We need to be set free. And they were set free that night because somebody cared to go and visit them. And let me just tell you, everybody that's broken is not going to walk in the doors of the church. That's why Jesus didn't just do his work inside the synagogues, but went out. And he visited with people. And everywhere he went, he visited with the compassion and the good news that he's taught us to have. We're the church. We're the ones carrying that out. That's what we do. That's what we do in everyday life at work or at school or in the neighborhood. It doesn't have to be organized. It just has to be intentional. We just have to realize that we've got amazing good news to share. We love God. We love the scripture, but we love people too, and people need to know Jesus. Would you agree with me today? People need to know Jesus, and we're called. We're called to represent him. Not a counterfeit religion, but the real thing. This woman was set free in spite of the religious havoc. Jesus broke through all that and said, Daughter, you're well. You're loosed. I wonder how many in this room today are in bondage. I wonder how many of you are wrapped up in sin or wrapped up in emotional hurt, disillusionment, disappointment. I wonder how many of you are so wrapped up that it's embarrassing, it's humiliating, you can't function well. And you want to know the same Jesus that set this woman free, you want to know, can he set me free? Does he see me? Does he know what I'm going through? Does he understand how bad it is? And the answer to all those things is, yes, he knows. I'm so glad to stand before you today and represent the Jesus who sees you and who knows you. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. I want you to think about the image of Jesus that we see there, the compassionate, smiling Jesus who cares and who has enough power to touch your life. I'm going to invite our prayer leaders to come to the front today. And as they come and stand across the front, the way we invite you to respond is simply to come and to take their hand. I'm going to close in prayer in just a moment. And um, we'll have everybody stand before then. And just take the time to walk forward and to take their hand. You may not even be able to articulate what's going on in your life. You may not know what to say. It's okay. They know exactly how to help you, how to pray for you, even if you don't know what to say. And there's enough people to pray for you where everyone that has a need today can be prayed for. And here's what we believe. We believe that some of the most powerful conversations that ever take place, take place at the end of our service at a time like right now, like right now. And I want to assure you that the most dynamic conversations you'll ever have are spiritual ones. And the truth is we don't have many spiritual conversations with people outside the church outside the flock of God. But here you can. Here you're free. You can ask anything. They'll pray with you. They'll help you. I want to invite those who are our guests to come to our guest reception room after you've made that decision you need to make in here. And it's just outside our exit doors across the hallway. And as always, I encourage you that are members of First Judith, this is your opportunity to give to the Lord as you go. And as you go to represent this Jesus we're talking about in Luke chapter 13, compassionate, smiling, loving, Jesus. Would you stand with me? Father, I thank you today in Jesus' name 
for the picture of Jesus that Luke gives us. Thank you for this woman in such deep pain, but we know the details of her life because she's recorded in Scripture. And we know the details of how you love her, how you interact with her, how you heal her. We know your compassion. We know you see. We know you know. And today, Father, I pray that we'll each take it personal, that you are a God like that. You're not an impersonal God. You're not a, a God who's just simply on the pages of Scripture, but you're real and you're active and you're working today, even now. Father, today, let not one person leave this room without having their questions answered, without making the decisions that need to be made. Thank you, Father, for calling us to this. In Jesus' name, amen.